Welcome to this week's episode of Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the biggest stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. This week, we're talking about the Iran deal that Donald Trump hates but was forced to love, what Trump gets wrong about Iran, but also what he gets right, and why Winnie the Pooh has suddenly been banned in China. But first, we start with Iran. Never, ever, ever in my life have I seen any transaction so incompetently negotiated as our deal with Iran. So never, ever, ever has he seen a deal so incompetently negotiated. But this week, he certified that that horrifically negotiated deal is working. Yes, the U.S. and Iran are getting back together. So, you know, there, there were reports all week that he didn't want to do that certification, that he had to be sort of bullied into it by his top aides, by the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is fascinating because he basically wanted to say they are not abiding by it. It turns out they actually are abiding by it, and now he's been forced to say so publicly. So let's start there. Let's talk about why would he not want to certify the deal, and why did he basically have to certify the deal? So basically, Trump doesn't like the Iran deal, not necessarily for the same reasons that a lot of experts don't like the Iran deal, um, people who opposed it. Iran does a lot of things that a lot of experts don't like that were not included under the Iran deal. But that's not really what Trump cares about. Trump cares about the Iran deal because it was an Obama creation. It was a big Obama win. And just like Obamacare, he wants to dismantle everything that Obama put together. The Iran deal is something that, as we heard in that delightful clip, he railed against over and over on the campaign trail. So it's basically something that he really wants to get rid of. But the problem is that it's working and a lot of people like it. So let's say what the it is before we before we keep going. Right. So the Iran nuclear deal basically is a quid pro quo between the, U the United States and the international community and Iran. Iran agrees to put really astonishingly strict restrictions on its nuclear program, getting rid of a lot of centrifuges used to create uh, nuclear material that could go into a bomb, agreeing to really uh, strict and invasive inspections of its nuclear facilities so the uh, international community can make sure that it's not violating the terms of the deal. Now, on the flip side, the United States and the European Union and other parties agree to relax their sanctions on Iran, sanctions that were doing a lot of damage to Iran's economy and were put in place over its nuclear program and seeming pursuit of nuclear weapons. The idea is that everyone wins. Iran gets access to some money, assets that have been frozen, an ability to trade internationally, and the rest of the world doesn't have to worry about an Iranian nuclear bomb potentially triggering a series of destabilizing and scary stuff in the Middle East. The thing that's interesting about this whole setup is Trump argues that the deal is incompetently negotiated. But when you talk to experts on nuclear proliferation, the opposite appears to be true. The U.S. and its allies got a lot more than they actually expected, frankly, out of Iran in exchange for relaxing sanctions. It really seems like it was well negotiated, not incompetently. But it is worth pointing out that there's not unanimity about this deal. So right. to put it very mildly, every U.S. ally that exists in the Middle East, almost without exception, hates this deal. Israel hates this deal. And Benjamin Netanyahu came to Washington and had that amazing moment where he addressed a joint session of Congress to bash a deal being negotiated by a sitting U.S. president. All of the Gulf allies the U.S. has, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, when they're not busy fighting each other, they hate this deal. So it is worth just noting that the U.S. got a lot of what it hoped it might get. Some of the European countries did too. But this is not a deal that the countries that are closest to Iran like. In fact, they despise this deal almost as Trump said he used to on a campaign trail. Right, but the reasons that they dislike it, I think, don't have very much to do with the deal itself. They don't like, one, the prospect of the United States 
getting on better terms with Iran, who they see as a strategic enemy. And two, they don't like Iran getting access to more money uh, because Iran is a strategic enemy for them. And they're actually in conflict in very different, various different places, including Syria and Yemen. And as a result, they don't like the fact that the U.S. and Iran came to terms over the nuclear deal. But they don't have a very good argument on the actual terms of the deal. That is that the deal will get Iran closer to a nuclear weapon. On the very narrow terms of nuclear nonproliferation, of preventing more weapons from going around the world, this deal is, is very hard to argue with. Right. And I think it's really important, and Yochi, you're totally right, in terms of Israel and, and Saudi Arabia and other countries not liking it. I, but I think we need to be careful when we say that Israel doesn't like the deal. We're saying a lot of people in Israel, and particularly Netanyahu, like you said, who came to address Congress and against it. But there are also security officials in Israel who have come out over and over and said, this is a great deal. So Carmi Gillen, I think is his name. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Um, but the former head of the Shabak, the Shin Bet, the Internal Israeli Security Service, Intelligence Service, he just wrote a piece in Foreign Policy just the other day. Um, and I have the quote here. It was about the deal. And he said, now the threat of an Iranian nuclear weapon is more remote than it has been in decades. Thanks to the agreement, Iran's nuclear program has been defanged and all its pathways to a bomb blocked. And that's the former head of Israeli, you know, Shin Bet, of the Shabak, of the Internal Security Service. So he's somebody who pays attention to Israeli security kind of a lot. One would presume. Right. I feel like, I mean, he's retired, so I, but I'm pretty sure he hasn't yeah, completely but, but given still. it up. <laughs> I feel like he probably still cares. And so, but that's, that's the point is that, Zach, you said, like, there are political arguments against the deal, but the actual terms of the deal, when you look at and you talk to experts— it actually did what it was supposed to. And, and what it was supposed to do wasn't get rid of Iran's entire nuclear program, like in total. It was supposed to basically extend the amount of time that they call the breakout time, the time that it could actually like produce a nuclear bomb. So before the deal, experts kind of estimated that within a few weeks, if Iran wanted to, it could produce a bomb. And now most experts agree as a result of the deal, it's been extended to at least a year. And that may not seem like a lot of time, right? A year is not that long. You know, a year gives you a lot of time to kind of figure out ways to respond to that if we were to be able to see that this was starting up again versus a couple of weeks to try to make that decision. So in and of itself, that was the point and that's what it has done. So when we talk about the nuclear deal being a success, that's what we mean. It didn't get rid of all the facilities. It didn't take away all their nuclear power. Um, it, it didn't do anything like that, but it it slowed the time that they could produce a bomb. There's sort of two parts of this that I find really interesting because neither one can be factually proven or disproven. You could sort of hope it's one, but not really know for sure. And Zach, I would push back a little bit when you said there were two factors people had against this. There's also a third, which was a concern that Iran would cheat, a concern that no matter how well done this deal was constructed, how many safeguards, how much monitoring rights were given, that Iran, like North Korea, and like, frankly, Iran had done before, would figure out a way to cheat. And that's not an irrational fear. You could then argue the nitty-gritty of, well, can this prevent all of that? Do we have enough inspections to make sure they don't? But that was a major argument, that Iran's going to cheat. And it's hard to prove, right? You can't prove they will or they won't. Although, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be borne out very well with the evidence we have right now. And given the quality of the inspections regime, it does seem to make cheating but, extremely right, hard. Right, but, but that's the issue. What we know now. Like, we would not, not necessarily know they've cheated until six months from now, and suddenly there's a facility we didn't know they had. Anyway, it's not a completely irrational fear, given that Iran has cheated before, as has North Korea, as has Iraq. Inspections have missed them. But in any event, you know, I, I take the point. The inspections are pretty strong. And then, Jen, to your point about Israel, there is the other argument that much of the Israeli security establishment made was there is no alternative to a deal. Right. And that was the question that Trump 
never had an answer to, that people who opposed this never had the answer to, which was, okay, let's say this deal is garbage. It sucks. We don't want to have any negotiations with Iran. Then what? Right. So I think it's, you're totally right. I think it's not actually, though, that there is no alternative. It's that the alternative to the deal is just really, really horrible. So Israel has written up plans and gamed out how they would go about doing an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities. Israel has done this before in Iraq. They the Osirak reactor. They bombed a nuclear reactor in Syria uh, in, what, 2007. So that is the other option that was kind of on the table, right, you know, when we were debating the Iran deal kind of in the first place. The argument is that, one, like the Iran deal itself obviously is peaceful, so it doesn't involve mass casualties potentially. But it's also the fact that if you were to go in and and destroy these facilities, you could rebuild them, right? To keep them from rebuilding, you would have to do a whole host of other things, right? So we're talking regime change, we're talking occupation, and that's that's just not feasible. It's just not something that anyone wants to spark a massive war in the Middle East. We already have plenty of them, but that's the thing. It's that the only other options are really, really fucking terrible. Yeah, and, and I think that it kind of gets you back to this fundamental question of why does Trump hate the deal so much? It's not clear to me that he understands what the repercussions would be of not certifying it. He seems to think, if the reporting was correct, this was the New York Times, Peter Baker, having a, a really good piece that if people haven't read, they should. But the reporting basically was Trump for almost an hour saying, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. And you can imagine him kind of with his orange skin getting all red-toned and his short fingers kind of getting all angry. And then every advisor he has saying, sir, you have to, sir, you have to, sir, you have to. But then trying to make it personal. Eh, I, you know, but his advisor is trying to figure out some way of making it more palatable to him. And there was one quote I read that I want to just read because it's really revealing of the way that the White House is trying to spin this. If I had reading glasses, I'd put them on, old as I am, but I can read without them. So, so this old. was, yes, yeah, so old. So this was H.R. McMaster. H.R. McMaster is the National Security Advisor. He's a three-star general who, before being part of the Trump White House, people really loved. And now people kind of pity, in part because he says things like this. So this was in a conference call Monday the same day that Trump certified the deal. He said Iran had breached the spirit of the deal, it's an exact quote, and had been walking up to violating the letter of the deal as well. So when you unpack that, violating the spirit, walking up to violating the letter of it means they haven't broken it. It's just a weirdly roundabout way of saying, we're going to be tough, but they actually haven't broken the deal. Right. So I think I want to point out, what does that mean? So McMaster isn't the only one who's ever said that they violated the spirit. Like experts have said, yeah, they probably violated the spirit. What does deal. that mean, though, so, violating the spirit so of the deal? So what it means, they specifically are mostly talking about the ballistic missile tests. So you need ballistic missiles to deliver nuclear weapons over long distances. Iran has medium-range ballistic missiles that can go certain distances. They don't currently have, they haven't, like, deployed and, like, put into operation um, an ICBM intercontinental ballistic missile that can go super-duper far. That's the technical term, is super-duper. <laughs> So the thing is that the, the Iran nuclear deal, as Zach said earlier, is incredibly narrow. And it was narrow for a reason. And one of the reasons was that Iran is a really also tough negotiator. And um, so the U.S. tried uh, and a lot of people wanted to include the ballistic missile program as part of the deal. Because even though it's not technically nuclear weapons and you can use ballistic missiles for other things— it's very closely tied to the nuclear program. Iran pushed back, and eventually the countries all kind of agreed to compromise and just kind of take it off. So in February, Iran did a big ballistic missile test, and everyone was super pissed off and saying, you know, this violates the spirit of the deal because, like, you're still testing the weaponry that's 
the thing that you're going to use to deliver this weapon if you get it. So, like, you're still being shitty without, like, technically violating the exact terms of the deal. So that's really what they mean when we talk about violating the spirit of the deal. Like, they're still pursuing technology that furthers the military part of the nuclear program. But at the same time, they also poured concrete into the Iraq heavy water reactor. That's A-R-A-K, not I-R-A-Q. Iraq, not Iraq. It's kind of close. So, you know, they poured concrete into it, and that's kind of going to be a problem to produce uranium. So, so they've done, like, the things that they were supposed to do. That's right, right? It's it's about this missile program. <laughs> Jen <laughs> says modestly. Yeah. Sorry, I know, proceed. <laughs> I know. Um, and yes, that's like, that's a problem. It really is a, a problem for U.S. foreign policy. And we're thinking through what the solutions are. And it's also worth noting that we have a separate set of sanctions that are response to the ballistic missile programs. Right. It's also worth thinking about what the consequences would be if you got rid of the deal now in response to this kind of testing. And it's important to emphasize that the distinction between what you do now in terms of canceling the deal and not agreeing it to uh, in the first place is quite strong. Because now the U.S. has given up a bunch of frozen assets right. that it had taken from Iran a while ago. Iran has a lot of money, and the U.S. can't take it back. We've freed up industry that— Iran is now, and restrictions on commerce, Iran is now building connections internationally. And if we were to just cancel the deal unilaterally, the countries that really work with Iran, that are pouring money into it right now in Europe and Asia, they wouldn't agree. They wouldn't put their sanctions back on. And the U.S. has never had a strong commercial relationship with Iran. So U.S. unilateral sanctions would not be that biting. So just canceling the deal would mean that Iran gets most of the stuff that it wanted and then the inspections would go away, and the restrictions on the nuclear program that we wanted would go away. And we also wouldn't be any closer to stopping ballistic missile tests. Like, there's no good strategic logic right. for doing it. Even, you know, the harshest critics of the deal in Washington, people like Mark Dubowitz at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, say you shouldn't just cancel the deal on your own, right? You need to think through other policy avenues to do it. Yet Trump— seems to really want, based on this uh, Peter Baker article that we've been talking about, really, really want to just cancel it. I think that's a great point. And, and I would go one step a little bit further, which is the only person right now, the only entity that does seem very plausibly to be violating the terms of this deal is the United States, which is both ironic and a little bit sad, exclamation point if we were doing the Trump impression. But, but here's why. So part of the deal was, it's not just lifting the sanctions, it's that the countries that had the sanctions would allow free trade with Iran. And that was really important to the Iranians, that their economy could grow, that they could do business with Boeing, with Airbus, with big kind of multinational companies. So there was language put in that specifically said, once these were lifted, no country that had sanctions can try to block Iranian trade, Iranian economic growth. The, the specific quote, this is from the deal was, and again, this refers to the United States, which is why we're going to focus on it, refrain from any policy specifically intended to directly and adversely affect the normalization of trade and economic relations with Iran. That's the key sentence. Right now, we know that Donald Trump went to the G20, and in between having his private meetings with Vladimir Putin and sort of his weird comments with other world leaders, he told those other world leaders, do not trade with Iran. Don't have business with Iran. Don't send your companies to meet with the Iranians to try to side trade deals. And so the Iranians say, that's violating the deal. Not the spirit of the deal, the letter of the deal. And on its face, they have a pretty good case. So the irony of an American president saying, can't trust those Iranians, they're going to cheat, they're going to break the deal, but then being the one himself who is breaking the deal. 
There's no cogent policy argument from the president as to why you should break the deal. If you look through this article and you look through his public pronouncements, I don't get a sense that he has a thought-out criticism of the Iran deal. If this were President Marco Rubio or another Republican, you could see you know, what the justification would be. It would be very similar to what you've heard from the Israelis and the Gulf states in terms of critiques of the deal. I don't fully understand why Trump hates this so much. There's certainly the explanation Jen was offering earlier that he doesn't like it because Obama did it. I'm not sure the extent to which this is true. And I worry about the fact that to understand American foreign policy right now, we can't fully rely on public pronouncements, policy statements, the normal tools you use to analyze how foreign policy works. You have to kind of psychoanalyze a president whose psychology is extremely difficult to fathom. Right. And that's a really awesome point because Javad Zarif, Iran's foreign minister, actually made that exact same point. Don't like agreeing with that guy. (laughs) Right. But he said, you know, I genuinely don't really know where Trump stands on the Iran deal. Like, I don't know if they're going to keep certifying it. So the thing is that as part of the deal, every 90 days, the U.S. president has to recertify it, basically continue to waive the sanctions every 90 days. So this whole big fight that apparently Peter Baker said that they had in the White House trying to convince Trump, and he was like throwing a temper tantrum saying, no, 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 I don't want to do it. You can't make me. La, la, la. I can't hear you. And they finally like pushed him into doing it. This is going to happen again in October. And then it'll happen again three months later, whatever month that happens to be. I can't count. But so— January. Fake news. Um, so— <laughs> But the thing is that, like, this is going to keep happening over and over. And the fact is that they may have convinced Trump to do it this time, but they're already saying that, like, he doesn't want to do it again in October, which means we're going to just keep coming up against this problem. So Zavad Jarif, who's the Iranian foreign minister, is a really interesting guy. He had gone to school in the United States. His kids come to school in the United States. His English is really fluent. Um, I met him once in Geneva. He is extraordinarily charming. He tells jokes. He's really approachable. Just an interesting diplomat. He's extraordinarily effective, which is not to say, and I want to stress this, it is not to say that the policies he pursues are ones that are benign. It's not to say he represents a friendly government. It's not to say he doesn't himself harbor harshly anti-Israel views, which he does. It is to say that Yochi loves Javad Zarif. I do love talking to Javad Zarif <laughs> for this reason. When the nuclear deal was announced, um, I was there. It was announced late at night, about four in the morning. And Zarif came out, joked about how tired everybody was, said, I have no opening statement, went straight to questions. Really useful. John Kerry came out in a very John Kerryan way, had a 45-minute opening statement <laughs> where we were all very literally falling asleep and then said, now we have time for two questions, and then walked away. The man is verbose. So the man, he is. The reason I mention him and Zavad Jarif is Zarif was in New York, and in a speech about this deal, he related kind of— This week. Uh, on Monday. He related this kind of remarkable little fact, but it actually tells you quite a lot. He was talking about Rex Tillerson, about the Secretary of State, Mr. Yeah. Charisma, and he said he'd never talked to him. They hadn't, charisma. they hadn't met, they hadn't spoken. Right. And he made the point that unlike with John Kerry, where they spoke all the time by phone and in person, but just let that sink in for a second. If you're thinking about American diplomacy, Zach, you know, I agree completely. You have a president who says something publicly that nobody knows if it's true, if it's going to be the same 90 days later, 30 seconds later, a week later. Then you have a secretary of state, you have a diplomatic apparatus that's meant to be the thing that does explain to the world what Donald Trump actually means. Arguably, there's a few things more important than the Iran deal. And the top diplomat we have has never spoken to the Iranian foreign minister. And that fact alone tells you so much about just the weird and bizarre and sort of dangerously unpredictable ways that the Trump administration is dealing with this Iran program. Right. And there's also the fact that going back to your point earlier about the Iranians' argument that 
the Trump administration is actively trying to convince businesses not to go and, and work with Iran, Kerry did the opposite, right? So because of this really contentious line in the deal, the Obama administration was so worried about Iran having buyer's remorse, essentially, and wanting to maybe cheat on the deal and go back on the deal. It was a hard sell in Iran, too. It's not like it just passed the flying colors there, either. It was probably as hard, if not harder, a sell in Iran as it was here in the U.S. on our side. So afterward, Kerry went on a kind of like whirlwind tour around the world, pressuring kind of countries saying, you should, you know, definitely go work with Iran. And we wouldn't be opposed to that. So essentially kind of trying to make sure that they got, that Iran got the benefits, the economic benefits that they were promised as the quid pro quo part of the deal. And so I think Zarif is kind of just pining for John Kerry and pining for the days when the administration was like actively trying to make this deal stick rather than grudgingly saying, I guess we'll let it go for another 90 days. Like those are two very different policy positions. And I think Zarif, I mean, he sounded like he was pouting, like Tillerson hasn't even come to say hi to me. And I mean, he doesn't even like want to talk to me. Like it was literally, (laughs) that's my ear voice. Um, I don't know what that last voice was. Something totally different. (laughs) But, I mean, the Iranians wrote an op-ed just the other day saying the same thing. Like, if there isn't a high-level state meeting between Rex Tillerson and Zarif, we will consider it an insult and, you know, a clear signal that the administration doesn't want this deal to stick. And it's such an easy thing that they could have done. It's not like it's a difficult thing to send Rex Tillerson to New York to meet with this guy. So it was a clear decision not to do that, to send that message. And that is a lot of what the Iranians are responding to. I want to illustrate the gravity of the situation here when we're talking about the Iran nuclear deal and Iranian nuclear weapons. There's lots of funny things, the president not understanding things, Rex Tillerson running a totally incompetent State Department. It's kind of funny. But a point that Jen likes to make when we talk about this just in the pod is that the alternative, the most likely alternative to the deal is something like North Korea, where you have Iran with nuclear weapons and there's basically nothing you can do to take them away. And I want to emphasize how scary that would be, right? This is not East Asia, where you have a lot of really stable, sophisticated governments that are close U.S. allies, that are democracies, or like China, where there's a lot of high-level contact and sort of a comparatively stable situation. This is the Middle East. This is a situation where you have Israel, who is rightly terrified about its own security and paranoid, given all the invasions and near extinctions it suffered. This is Saudi Arabia, which views Iran as its number one strategic threat. This is Egypt, which still is run by a violent dictator and has been unsuccessful in putting down an ISIS insurgency. This is Pakistan, which is full of militant groups, including one that's right across the border from Iran. This is an incredibly unstable situation. The risk of an accidental nuclear war, if Iran were nuclear armed or nuclear proliferation or terrorists getting their hands on nuclear weapons, it's a lot higher. And if the deal were to fail, if it were to collapse in some way due to U.S. incompetence or Iranian cheating, we're right back to a situation where we have either a really scary war or we have the situation I was just describing of essentially North Korea on the Persian Gulf. But it's even worse than that, actually, if you could possibly say that, and I can. So a lot of scholars of nonproliferation talk about the possibility of a massive arms race in the Middle East starting. So Israel, even though its stated policy is to not admit that it has nuclear weapons, has around 80 to 100 nuclear weapons, most estimates as of 2017. 
um, according to, to CIPRI, it's uh, 2017. It was between 80 and 100. Some estimates say over 100, but it's in that range. Comparatively, we have like 6,500. Uh, Russia has like 7,000. So just to put that in perspective, North Korea has like 10, according to the estimates, just to kind of give you a sense of who has what. Um, but Saudi Arabia doesn't have nuclear weapons, right? But Pakistan does. Uh, Turkey doesn't, but they have ours. <laughs> so they're NATO ally, and we have nuclear weapons there pointed towards Russia. So most scholars agree pretty unanimously that if Iran goes full nuclear, that Saudi Arabia will immediately follow. And it wouldn't be that hard. It's not like they would actually have to develop their own domestic nuclear program. They could probably just call up Pakistan and get some nukes from them. I mean, that's also how Iran got a lot of its nuclear technology from AQ Khan. But the fear of conflagration of a war just goes up even higher. Then you have, you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran who have been in a cold war for for decades. If they're both nuclear armed, that's scary. It's not to say that there would be a nuclear war. Deterrence has worked so far. So India and Pakistan both have nuclear weapons. They're mortal enemies. They haven't started a full-on nuclear war. But scholars also talk about this dynamic that happens that it could actually produce more non-nuclear conflicts. Because they have nuclear weapons, they'll be more willing to just use like regular conflict on the ground and it could produce. But no matter what, it's really, really unstable and really dangerous. So that point about the other things Iran is doing is fascinating. And I, I want to come back to that in just in a, in a moment. But I do want to push back a bit on both of parts of both of, of, both of uh, what you were saying. Bring it. Likening Iran to North Korea doesn't work. North Korea is an unpredictable, in part irrationally governed state that much of the world has no connection to, much of the world doesn't understand, doesn't have a functioning economy. We know very little about it. It's kind of a black box. Iran, although it's often point, painted as an irrational country, is a very rational country. Most of the world, except for us, has embassies. They have trade deals. Iran is part of the world community and has been for quite some time. Nothing in Iranian recent history, nothing suggests irrationality. In fact, no country has done better in the current chaos in the Middle East, much of it unleashed by the U.S., than Iran. Iran is the big winner of the Iraq war because they are now effectively determining the fate both of the government of Baghdad, but also the fight against ISIS on the ground. They're the big winner of the Syrian civil war. Just this week, we learned that the U.S. has canceled a program designed to oust Bashar al-Assad. Iran has had fighters in Syria protecting Bashar al-Assad. Iran has influence in Yemen. Iran is the biggest supplier of Hezbollah in Lebanon. So Iran is moving very strategically and when you think about what the U.S. has spent in the Middle East in terms of people and money, trillions of dollars, thousands of dead soldiers, and what we have for it is basically, at best, a kind of quasi-fragile, quasi-stable Iraq, at best. Meanwhile, Iran has lost very few people, spent very little money, has control in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Syria, and has, in the Gaza Strip and in parts of the West Bank, influence over the Palestinians as well. So likening them to North Korea, just it just doesn't hold. They're well, not an irrational so I, country. Yeah, I, so I actually disagree. I mean, I, I think what you said about I'm Iran is correct. There's nothing incorrect about that Iran has been very successful in promoting its interests in the Middle East. I, I don't think Iran and North Korea are mirror images in any way. I mean, they're vastly different systems. And um, First of all, I do think North Korea is a rational regime. So there's that personally just in the way that they, they operate in terms of actual rationality, in terms of policy. But there's also the fact that the way the Iranians kind of look at the situation is really similar to the way that the North Koreans look at the situation in terms of why they want nuclear weapons. So if you look at the Defense Department's strategic posture review of, of Iran, the Pentagon 
describes their strategic posture their def- as defensive, not offensive, in terms of their military strategy, which is debatable. What they mean is like the, the broader strategic posture. Now, they are offensive in that they promote terrorist groups and you know militias all over the, the Middle East and are destabilizing. But when they talk about like the Iran uh, like nuclear program and that kind of posture, so Israel has nuclear weapons in the region and that Israel feels threatened. So it that's why it has nuclear weapons. It's not like Israel would go attacking Iran for no reason if Iran weren't belligerent towards it. But if you look at the issue with Saddam, and it's, again, that kind of same issue that we talked about in the other podcast a couple of weeks ago, you know, the issue of, like, regime change and whether, like, nuclear weapons give you the kind of stability where, well, now we have this thing that means America won't fuck with us. Like, they won't pursue regime change. They won't push us around because we have this thing that they can't do. So I think there are a lot of similarities between why Iran was pursuing a nuclear weapon and why North Korea is. Right. I also don't super buy the picture of a totally ascendant Iran throughout the Middle East that Yochi was just painting. Syria is, I think, the critical example to me. Iran isn't really making progress in Syria. If you think about the Syrian civil war, it started before it started in 2011, Iran had a very stable ally in Bashar al-Assad's regime, a a strong, comparatively wealthy proxy, not proxy in the sense they just did Iran's bidding, but a country that Iran could work with, that they used to supply their true proxies in the Palestinian territories and in Lebanon, Hezbollah, and to a certain extent, Hamas. Now, with the war, they're fighting just to get back to that status quo. The Assad regime has been weakened substantially. Iran has lost soldiers. They've spent a ton of money. Perhaps more importantly, Hezbollah has lost huge amounts of manpower in trying to prop up Assad. They've spent a lot of resources that they could spend on other strategic objectives just trying to get back to the status quo that it was before the war. And and it will be weaker no matter what. Even if Assad takes back all of Syria, his country has been immiserated. His population has been decimated. His armed forces are tremendously weaker. It, It seems to me that Iran has been on the losing side of the Syrian civil war, even though their ally is winning in that it has lessened their influence, not strengthened it. And their nuclear program was one of the things that gave them a real strategic advantage or would have if they had the nuclear weapons, and and that's been blocked. Yeah, the reason why I I think possibly the core of the reason we see this differently is in some cases things are actually zero-sum. Donald Trump sees everything as zero-sum, and often it's not, but in, in some places and some things it is. And in the Syrian civil war, there was a zero-sum question at the outset, which was, will Bashar al-Assad survive or not survive? Will his government, no matter how much of the country it has lost, still at the end of the day be in power? And there was a moment when Barack Obama was debating whether to arm the Syrian rebels where that was in question. It was not clear if he would survive. And for the Russians and the Iranians, they had one goal, which was keep Bashar al-Assad in power. And they have. So has Syria lost territory, the Syrian government? Of course. Is Aleppo and much of the rest of the country that there's been fighting, heavy fighting in and wreckage? Of course. Is it the worst humanitarian crisis in the 20th century and 21st century since World War II? Yes, 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 and yes. But to the zero-sum goal Iran had is keep Bashar al-Assad in power, they've done that. There's also a really interesting hot mic moment this week with Benjamin Netanyahu, who was speaking, he thought, just to his friendly fellow relatively far-right leaders in Poland and Hungary and started bashing the EU. But there was a moment in it also picked up by the hot mic that was really revealing, where he said that Israel had bombed, in his words, dozens and dozens of Iranian convoys that were moving through Syria into Lebanon. And that's interesting, not just because Israel rarely admits to bombing inside of Syria, but because of what underlies that statement, that there are convoys continuing to move from Iran to Lebanon through Syria. So 
I agree. It's not as if Iran has Bashar al-Assad as he was before the war, but they have Bashar al-Assad. And they have the conduit to Lebanon that they've wanted to have and have used for years. That's still there and that's still intact. What I think is interesting, too, at that hot mic moment is there was another comment that he made about the Obama administration versus the Trump administration. He said, we're glad, basically, I can't remember verbatim, but we had problems with the Obama administration, which is a really polite way of saying things. But he said, I think we're good now with the Trump administration. I think we're good now on ISIS. I'm not sure about Iran. And I found that really interesting because— If I'm Benjamin Netanyahu looking at Trump's very grudging, I guess I'll let the Iran nuclear deal go forward for 90 days more, but we'll see again. If I'm Netanyahu, I'm thinking, all right, great, that's that's pretty sweet. Like, I've I've basically got this guy on my side. Um, But the fact that he didn't say that was really interesting to me, and I'm not sure if that represents the broader kind of understanding that the rest of the establishment, the adults in the room, in the administration, are very, very good. And to be clear, like, James Mattis was pushing for this reportedly, and he's very hawkish on Iran. These aren't Iran doves. These aren't people that want to sing Kumbaya and hold hands with Iran. And if they think that the deal is good and should stay in place, that's pretty significant. Well, what's interesting, uh, if you just take a step back on that point, is that the places where Iran has done the best in the past 10, 15 years are the places where the U.S. and its allies have been most belligerent. Iraq is the obvious example, yeah. right? If it weren't for the U.S. of invasion, Saddam Hussein, who was an inveterate Iran hawk and enemy, they fought a devastating war in the 80s. And he'd still be there. Now there's a majority Shia government that Iran has real tendrils of influence over. Yep. Yemen is another really good example. Before the Saudi Gulf War that started there in 2015, with U.S. backing, Iran had relatively limited links to this rebel movement called the Houthis there. They, they just weren't very tightly connected. Right. As the war has gone on, Iran has started supplying the Houthis with more and more support because they need it, because they're fighting Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and the Houthis have no choice but to turn to anyone who will help them. And Iran has been willing to help them. So the more aggressive it seems and the more interventionist and violent uh, American foreign policy and the foreign policy of its allies gets— the more we seem to expand Iran's influence. It's almost as if unthinkingly bombing things is a bad solution to problems in the Middle East. I also think it's really interesting, and this is not to go in a a different direction, but when you talk about the unintended consequences of American foreign policy, that actually gets to the root of the Iranian nuclear program because they essentially got their nuclear technology and trained their nuclear scientists from the United States. So the Eisenhower Adams for Peace program in the 1950s We basically had this program where we said, you know, there's going to be this technology, it's going to proliferate. How can we make sure this doesn't turn into weapons? Well, you know, these developing countries will give them the peaceful technology, and that way we can monitor and make sure that they're only using it for nuclear power and for radioisotopes for medical purposes. And that's what we did. You know, we gave them their first small, you know, five megawatt reactor. We actually had a deal, the Iranians made a deal with MIT to create a brand new master's program to train Iranian nuclear scientists and engineers in the technology and and the materials. I mean, we gave them the essential building blocks and the training to build a nuclear program. But then the Iranian revolution happened, right? The Islamic revolution in 1979. And we were like, well, shit, we're not going to do this anymore. And that's kind of where things break off. And that's, I think that's a really important point is that you can't see the future. So even when you're making decisions that maybe at the time seemed rational when it comes to you know, the Middle East or, or foreign policy, 
because things change, because the world is volatile, you can't really predict where things are going to go. I feel like we maybe could have predicted, I feel like some people did, that maybe Iraq would not go so well. Some people didn't really listen. But, hmm, (laughs) hmm, interesting. I feel like I remember that. But I think it's important to note that, you know, even some of the best ideas or done with the best intentions in in the Middle East and anywhere else can actually completely backfire and end up having these horrifying unintended consequences like Iran now has an active nuclear weapons program that has just been frozen. But that's because of us. And I think when we talk about things that are unintended, we can also talk about things that are planned, which gets us to elsewhere, which begins in China. And the reason why there's a quick supercut of Winnie the Pooh is that this week, China took its great firewall of China, which bans content, bans the use of some things on social media, and banned the use of Winnie the Pooh, which is fantastic. And our colleague Rebecca Tan did a great piece about it, but basically the reason is this. There was a meme going around showing the president of China, Xi Jinping, walking next to Barack Obama, who's much taller that a lot of Chinese social media users began to put next to a photo of Winnie the Pooh and Tigger walking, with Tigger being much taller than a kind of fat Winnie the Pooh. But it actually, like, the positions of their hands, their heads, their legs, it's almost like a mirror image of the actual image of Pooh and Tigger. It's not just that, like, one's kind of short and rounder, one's kind of tall and skinny. The picture was creepily, eerily similar. Although, thankfully, thankfully, Xi Jinping was wearing pants. Unlike Winnie the Pooh, who inexplicably was not. And he did not have a bucket of honey. Yeah, there was a big debate in the Vox Slack room earlier about why Winnie the Pooh wears a t-shirt but no pants. Like, what's going on with that? And someone talked about Donald Duck as a point of comparison for a while. It was very weird. But it was very weird. (laughs) Vox Media Slack. It's weird. And there's a good reason, thankfully, that it is private and often not seen by the rest of the world. But It was an interesting moment because they banned Winnie the Pooh for an actual kind of a serious reason. They also more recently banned WhatsApp, which is one of the most popular social media messaging apps and platforms in the world, in part because it's encrypted so powerfully that's hard for someone to eavesdrop on it. And the reason they did it is there's about to be a major, major Congress in China that's designed to sort of lay the groundwork for their projects for the year and also lay the groundwork for a transition of power. And they don't want this thing to look, to look messy. National Party Congress. Exactly. Right. They want this to be clean. And so it's interesting that just ahead of this, you have this kind of serious thing manifesting with a serious step like banning WhatsApp, the less serious step of banning Winnie the Pooh, but all sort of happening in, in a weird way, calling attention to the kind of thing they did not want to call attention to in the first place. Yeah. So I think Censorship in China is really fascinating just topic itself. So I just recently got back from a 10-day trip to China. It was my first time going there. It was a kind of a press trip. And I got to meet with the Chinese foreign ministry, and I got to meet with, um, you know, the heads of the Chinese People Daily, like the newspaper there, um, meet with their editorial board, um, meet with some other media representatives. I met with people who are think tankers. I met with academics. It was a really amazing kind of whirlwind tour. Um, But it was really fascinating. There were a couple different things. So one of the things just kind of being there is like realizing how sometimes difficult it is to actually access information. So I'd heard about the Great Chinese Firewall. And then once I got there, I was going to use a VPN, a virtual private network. It's a thing that you use to connect, essentially get around censorship. Um, It's like the most basic way I can describe it because I literally don't know anything more about it than that, clearly because it didn't work. So when I got to China, I had no way to connect to like the internet or to do anything. So I had to end up just connecting to 
like the hotel Wi-Fi, which is probably like not the safest thing to do. But whatever, I needed to send some texts and I needed to read Twitter. And like you can't. So sometimes, you know, Twitter's banned in China. Facebook is blocked and Facebook now owns WhatsApp. So um, that's also partly why. But individually, you have to use Bing because you can't use Google. And my boyfriend, hi, Mark, uh, prefers Bing. I don't know why. I love him very much. It's nonsense. And he loves it's Bing. putting Mark into a demographic of one. I know, but he's so wonderful, so it's totally awesome. But the thing is that, like, I actually had to use Bing, and it was relatively useful. But I was actually really fascinated, too, by the fact that, like, it didn't really seem to block a lot of Chinese people. People still got on Twitter. People still found ways around it they also would get VPNs or they also would figure out the New York Times is banned, you know, but you can read, I think, the Washington Post. So it's like, I mean, you're going to have similar stories running. So it was really fascinating too. And just the, the nature of like why censorship happens and, and what they're trying to censor was really interesting. So when I was talking to the editorial board of this newspaper, um, they have English language and Chinese language uh, papers. They have print, they have online. And one of the journalists on uh, in our group was asking, are you allowed to criticize Xi Jinping? Are you allowed to criticize the regime? And they said, well, you know, we're allowed to, we're definitely allowed to be critical. We're we're allowed to criticize things like corruption. And I, I said, oh, you mean the, the big corruption push that has been Xi Jinping's major policy priority? And they're like, yeah. I was like, so you're allowed to do something that Xi Jinping wants. Got it. What about Xi Jinping himself? And they all just like froze and were like, no. We are not allowed. Absolutely not. And then there was awkward silence. And then this younger woman intern goes, not that we would ever want to, because he is really a blessing to China. And it was just stunning. Like, we're sitting there like, are you shitting me right now? But they, you know, they have to say this thing because there's foreign journalists. But it's just fascinating to see. There is actually some room for, for criticism in China, but it's only like within like the very strict boundaries of what the regime allows. Right. This is how authoritarian governments work yeah. and how they operate, right? They don't... They want to create a facade of disagreement, an outlet for people to express yeah. their feelings that's controlled and contained, which is why this Winnie the Pooh thing, incidentally, is so telling. Like, it sounds ridiculous, and it's very funny to talk about a bear with no pants, but Winnie the Pooh is not something that you should need to ban, right? If you're concerned about expression, banning a cartoon bear that isn't even like a symbol of mass protest— it's not that Chinese people are using Winnie the Pooh to signify some deep need for democracy. It's just a really minor outlet for making fun of the leader, which is what's not permitted. Authoritarian regimes are really brittle in that sense, right? They're hard and strict about certain things. But when you poke them in their weak points, that's when they break if they're allowed to be a mass poking in those weak points, which is why they're so strict about little symbols like this becoming popular, Please don't ever say mass poking again. I, I was actually thinking <laughs> that exact same thing. Oh it's, my God. It's a troubling, troubling image. I don't know what's wrong with you guys. You guys <laughs> right. are weird. Fair enough. But there was an interesting study this week that uh, David Ignatius wrote about in the Washington Post. It was looking at specifically the way China tries to fight propaganda and try, tries to fight dissent at home. And the finding was, was basically counterintuitive, at least to me. And what the study found, and the study, I want to just give proper credit to the people who did it, Gary King at Harvard, Jennifer Pan at Stanford, Margaret Roberts at uh, UC San Diego. It found that online, the kind of Chinese trolls who are trying to combat dissent don't do it by arguing. They don't do it by trying to say, you're wrong, China's great at this and the West is, is evil. They do it by just pumping out good news. They just sort of flood the internet and flood Twitter and flood Chinese social media with sort of pablum, just with like bland kind of 
today's a good day in China for this reason, or I just saw this amazing concert. And what the study found is that's actually the way China controls the scent online, as much, if not more so, than just trying to ban and block. So how do we get our trolls on Twitter to do that instead of just making really, really, really racist memes and calling people cucks and really offensive things? Can we just get them to, like, flood us with pablum? Because I I would really prefer that. So you prefer just compliments, basically. I would prefer literally anything except for racist bile and frog memes. But it's really funny when you you talk about, like, criticizing the leader. There's a lot of talk about, about Donald Trump having some authoritarian tendencies. You can go back and forth on that. But, I mean... I could see Donald Trump, not that hopefully the Congress or the judiciary would let him, being kind of like, yeah, I would totally love to ban memes that are making fun of me. Like, how do I do that? Like, hey, she, how do how do you guys do that? Because there are a lot of funny memes about Donald Trump that he probably finds really offensive and probably really doesn't like. And there were a lot of really offensive memes about Barack Obama, perhaps even more, and they were especially racist. But the thing is, Obama didn't rail against the free press and didn't rail against, you know, freedom of speech in the same way that that Trump does. The thing is that, like, leaders in democracies are mocked. That's a thing that we are allowed to do openly, hilariously, sometimes even really poorly. But you can do that. And that's a really fundamental thing that I think a lot of people don't realize that I didn't even realize until I started, you know, when I was younger and I started traveling. Even when I lived in Morocco, you go into a restaurant and there's, you know, a giant framed painting of, you know, of the king. It's just like, oh, there's a huge painting of the leader on the wall behind you and you can't say anything bad about him. And I kind of thought he looked like Pee Wee Herman. And I said that and they were like, you can't say that. There's also an interesting thread that I'm hesitant to bring up for a reason that will become clear to anybody who listened last week. Hopefully there are many tens of thousands of you who did. And Zach is already drinking some sort of iced coffee because I think he may have some sense of where this is going. In repressive countries where you can't openly say your leader's a moron, they often do use memes. So in China, they're using Winnie the Pooh. Here's why I'm scared about where this is going. In Turkey, they used Gollum. (laughs) And President Erdogan of Turkey, who actually does look a lot like Gollum, which is kind of scary, has literally gone to war to try to ban Turks from doing what they have done, which is if they can't criticize him publicly— just flood Turkish social media with different images of Gollum next to Erdogan, Gollum next to Erdogan. And that's why I was scared to do it, because last week I thought that was a bad impression. And then according to many of the people who were kind enough to pop into Apple Podcasts to rate and review, several of them said it was a great impression. I stand corrected. hurts the precious. And now I've created a monster, okay, now an actual I need, monster. I need... I did Zach as Gollum doing Winnie the Pooh. Can, can you work on that no, for next I, that, week? <laughs> that's like a meta impression. That so I'm meta, not, like, and I really need that to, to happen. <laughs> so as we kind of wrap up, I do want to make one point. Part of the fun of this podcast, what we're able to do is the three of us, it basically began because we sit in the Vox newsroom next to each other. Jen and I are next to each other. Zach's directly across from us. And we basically talk throughout the day. And part of what we try and do on the podcast is sort of make that feeling carry through. We owe people who listen feel like they're part of this friendship and this kind of community. But that's really how this podcast developed. It was the three of us talking, having fun, joking around, and trying to recapture that here as best we can in recorded form. The reason I mention all of that is that today, courtesy of an idea of Zach's that I have to admit I hated, we are all, including our brilliant producer, Peter, who's sitting behind silent, glass-proofed, soundproofed room that we can stare at, all of us are wearing worldly t-shirts. They're pretty good. You will see photos of this on Instagram. Mine's the cutest. You will then know we are telling the Excuse truth. Excuse me, Jen. <laughs> Make sure to comment on who wore it best. Yeah. So 
on Instagram. Please don't. That's going to end up so (laughs) It's going to end really badly. (laughs) (laughs) But on Instagram, on Facebook, where we're trying really hard to build a community around the show, come have a look. You'll see what we all look like when we're goofing around, what we all look like when we're serious. With that, we'll close and see you all next week. I do want to say, if you like what you're hearing, we hope you do. Please come subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, almost anywhere else you could find us. Our thanks, as always, to our brilliant producer, Peter. Also want to give a shout out and encourage people to go look and find on Facebook or on our YouTube channel an amazing video that our colleague Sam Ellis did on the Iranian-Saudi Cold War, how it started, where it goes from here, what it means, why it's so dangerous. It's really strong. You'll watch it. You'll devote six or seven minutes of your life, and you will be smarter. Our thanks to Zach. Our thanks to Jen. If I could thank myself. My thanks to me. Jen's on that kind of roll. (laughs) And we'll see you all next week.